So in China, there is always pressure and it is easy to say, yeah, you can escape and, but it's, it's, if everyone tells you the same thing and if you are kind of in this cage, yeah, difficult to get out. So it is what it is for many people. It's a constant hassling. People often reject to believe what they don't understand or what scares them. With Dragonfolio China, you have the unique chance to truly understand a frequently misconceived country and an inevitable shift in the 21st century. Just lean back and enjoy a fascinating journey through China that will astonish and reward you. All right, Niemann Hao guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Dragonfolio China podcast. My name is Eric, and today let's talk about food delivery in China, to be precise, and what it can show us and tell us about the Chinese society. Because I believe there are a couple of unknown issues that you can relate to the delivery industry in China. And especially recently, there's certain development that shows two sides of China. And I'm going to elaborate a bit on this today. Though after the last episode where I talked about Ant Financial and its planned IPO, I cannot continue without at least addressing what happened in the meantime. As you might have heard, the IPO of Ant Financial, which was supposed to be the largest IPO in history, measured by value at least, was called off. Um, basically, there are well, there are different scenarios, but we can, I think, summarize that the most likely scenario is that Jack Ma, founder of Alibaba and Ant Financial, wrapped the Chinese government in the wrong way. And so the IPO was actually not cancelled, but postponed to a point later in time, most likely the beginning of next year or any any time next year. And with a lower um, valuation for the for the company, probably. And what it shows us is that, well, the Chinese government is not only powerful. I think we knew this before. We still... We all know that they have influence, can have influence on the economy, on businesses, on people like Jack Ma, especially if they feel like that other people become too powerful, have too much influence, then they show them who still basically is on top in the hierarchy. But what it also shows, and that is what people often forget these days, is that It is not just politicians who are powerful, because what happened now is we say it was the government, but in China, for instance, banks are super powerful. They have much more power than, let's say, in Europe, for instance. And we know that Ant Financial is a serious competition for a lot of banks, for a very conservative industry with good connections to the government. And with certain influence as well. And now they saw Ant as a rising star. And they kind of thought about what can we maybe do. If China would be a totalitarian and corrupt country. Then they would not just cancel the IPO. They would just smash Ant. 
But they won't do this because they also know about the power and potential for China these days and they allow some freedom for these businesses until they either get um, too large or they are dangerous in the way that they might influence people in, in, in a certain manner which is undesired by the government or by certain people in positions like banks. Okay, that's my uh, comment on this. Um, I'm, I'm curious how these things turn out um, next year. I think not, not too much to care about right now. Let's focus on some other things. And today, as I said, it's going to be food delivery. And I picked this example because it tells us a lot about China and where China really is right now. Those of you who don't follow on Chinese media channels, and I think that's most of you, you might not have noticed that there was a kind of shitstorm some weeks, actually, a month ago, uh, which was targeting the food delivering industry, particular um, one, one company. The situation is like this. Um, food delivery is booming in China. It was booming prior to Corona. And of course, with the epidemic, it even increased further. To give you some facts here, the entire food delivery industry has nearly 30-fold within the last decade. And in 2020, so this year, around 40% of the internet users in China have used online food delivery services in some way. And it is slightly different from the way we use it. We normally use it for dinner or maybe to order lunch, but in China, it is more cost-effective and people might even say, well, they are very busy at home or at the office and then they're craving for, let's say, a fresh brewed coffee from their favorite chain or their favorite bubble tea. And then they're just going to order and even a order for three or four euro is not totally uncommon. It is, at the end, faster, more convenient and cheaper than in the West generally speaking. In addition, when we talk about differences between the food delivery world in China and the West, then I also should mention that it's more common to order all kinds of things very easily and quickly with these apps. So you can purchase medication, you can purchase all daily essentials from supermarkets, such as fruits, fresh veggies. In China, it is very important for people to have fresh food, to have very high quality. So they are increasingly also targeting like these fresh markets because they might, some people, they might be very busy, but when they come home, they want to have these fresh ingredients in their fridge. And so they just say, hey, I'm going to order this stuff from the market. They pick it up and deliver it home. So it's not just they order junk food or some frozen fruit from the supermarkets. Um, it's a bit it's a bit more sophisticated these days. There are two companies in China which basically dominate this field. One is Meituan Tianping and one is Ulema. Those are the yeah widely used food delivery apps in China. I think about 80-90% of all deliveries run through their apps. Meituan is a Tencent-backed company, so the large Tencent company is heavily involved there. And Ulema, Ulema literally, by the way, means are you hungry, 
is backed by, guess who, by the largest e-commerce operator in China, which is Alibaba. Most critics these days is with Meituan. Meituan Waimai. Waimai means like to, to take out, to, to buy outside, literally. Personally, I have to say I barely used it in China. But this is simply because I'm not a big fan of Waimai. I'm not a big fan of um, food delivery. I either like to cook food by myself at home or I dine out. But I, I never really got the point that delivery is such a great thing. I understand it's convenient and for some people it makes sense. But let's say it was not invented for me, for persons like me. I understand, however, it's a great thing for a lot of people. And with this, let's get into the real issue in China that caused this huge debate. While the epidemic was spreading in China and during the peak, Meituan and Ulema created a lot of job opportunities for people who were affected by the epidemic, who might have been laid off during the lockdown or who had problems to find a job anyways. In March alone, there were around 400,000 new drivers who were added to the paylist of Meituan. And um, yeah, in the entire first half of this year, 2020, around 1.4 million people joined the company as delivery guys. And overall in China, if you take all the companies together, there's a network of around 7 million drivers. That's a lot, obviously, right? And the problem is that the working conditions are unsurprisingly questionable in parts. They have been sharply criticized uh, even before that and on social media. And the problem here is that due to the intense competition and also the target to grow, to grow market share, to gain more profits, companies like Meituan are exploiting the employees as much as possible. How does this work? Well, with the technology that these companies have nowadays they improve the algorithms for instance and increasingly try to optimize their profits for the company by steering their dri their drivers and for instance they um, established a reward or penalty system for delivery time so if you are fast you it's not just about you get more money but or more money directly but you might also have more deliveries, better deliveries, more profitable ones if you are considered a better driver because you were faster and the other way around. If you're too slow, it's not just you make less money because it simply took you more time, but you might also be punished in a way that you get less orders or let's say more unattractive ones. And this, of course, puts a lot of pressure on the drivers and kind of puts drivers in certain risk scenarios because they might exceed speed limits, they might run over red lights, they might uh, drive against the flow of traffic and all these kind of things just to make more money and to yeah fulfill their job actually without having bigger issues. And well, to be honest, it's not like this is totally uncommon in China anyways. I cannot tell you how many scooters I've seen 
who run against the flow of traffic, who cross red lights and all kind of things that I saw. And if you now have a system in place that even rewards that, then that's of course very dangerous. In addition, we have to consider that when the weather is very extreme on a, let's say, extremely rainy day, then the orders from customers naturally increase. So they have more work to do while the road conditions and weather conditions are worse. And yeah, of course, there are also questions about are these drivers properly trained? There are other risk factors. So overall, you can say it's not a bed of roses for these drivers and the treatment is debatable. I'm not going into a ethical discussion here, whether it's okay to hire these drivers and put them in these conditions. Uh, it's, some people say it's uh, supply and demand based. Um, some people say it's highly unmoral. Uh, I want to discuss rather why are these drivers taking up these risks? Why are they taking these jobs if they are apparently uh, so unattractive? The first thing that comes into our mind is, of course, well, I guess the salary is very good, right? So this is why so many people wanted to be on board and, and have these jobs. Well, not necessarily. According to statistics that I found, only 2% of the entire workforce of drivers earn more than 10,000 renminbi. That is around 1,250 euros per month or about 1,500 US dollars. That's not really a lot in China these days. And this is why it's not really a big surprise that more than half of the respondents of the surveys said that they have difficulties to make their living with this salary. It's also, it's important to understand that when you see who's, who's the delivery guy in China, it can basically be anybody. You see younger guys, middle-aged, even some older guys, not like 80 years, but yeah, let's say 50s, it's, it's not totally uncommon. If you look how it works, I mean, I can at least speak for Europe. In Europe, these guys that I see here, I'm, I'm in the Netherlands right now for a few weeks, all the guys who, de who are delivering food on their bikes, on their scooters that I see are 98% are young guys who are students who might want to have some extra money to um, finance their, let's say, additional living expenses to um, yeah, have some additional income. But most guys here are not doing it to support a family or to, yeah, you know, survive. It's more nice to have on top and yeah, maybe a better job than, than uh, working in, in some shitty indoor area. But in China, it is a full-time job for a lot of people who really want to finance their life with this. That's a big difference. And for many of these guys, it is important to have any job at all. China came out of this crisis very well. Just yesterday, I looked at some statistics of domestic air traffic. It's, wow, I mean, China is really back to the pre-COVID level. The traffic is back to normal. I know some people doubt it, but there are 
a lot of indicators that prove that all my friends in China already month ago, not just yesterday, month ago confirmed that life is back to normal. There is no big difference. They are very afraid of a second wave. This is why they are very restrictive and why people like me still have to stay outside of China. Very tough to get back. But internally, China is doing quite okay. Though we cannot ignore that not every single sector in China has seen a rapid rebound. And with all these positive reports that we hear of, that we read about, and China's economy is one of the only ones growing this year, yes, but despite all that, it should be clear that many Chinese are still suffering from the economic consequences of the lockdown. Not everyone is doing so great, and you as an individual in China, you need to watch out for solutions these days. You cannot ignore that the world is changing also in China. And one opportunity that opens up here are jobs in the online merge offline world. The traditional street vendor has to look for new ways. The average Wang in China has to think about do we have to change jobs? And some they don't even have a real choice because they were just laid off. The labor laws in China are, of course, very different. A lot of people found themselves on the street if you had temporary work agreements or even if you have good contracts, companies can easily dismiss you. Moreover, guys notoriously have the highest pressure. If you have a family or if you want to have one, you must have some solid income. Although there are such things as family security in China, so normally you have some backup, you don't have to worry that you're going to starve literally, but anyone who lives in a city and who wants to meet certain obligations and maybe who has to fulfill certain liabilities, whether in a financial way or a social way, they usually are dependent on a regular solid income because China is definitely no longer a cheap place. And now I know some people might think, hold on, Eric, I've been to China. China is dirt cheap. Or some people say, hey, but what about all these cheap products and what I heard about China? China is cheap, no? Not really. At least not for most Chinese. It depends, of course, on what you are exactly doing and where you live. As a rule of thumb, which I came up with myself, the more Western you live and the more asset-oriented you live, the more expensive it is. What do I mean by that? If you have a, if you lean to, towards a more Western lifestyle, I use Western for the lack of a better word. What I mean with this is, if you like to drive European cars, if you like to go to the movies or clubbing, if you like to eat a lot of dairy products, then it is more expensive than if you live in a more traditional Asian way. So that's the first one, the Western lifestyle, more Western. Second, the asset-based. I would say whereas it is relatively cheap in the service area, 
assets are not. So if you go to China and let's say you have a haircut, if you have a taxi ride, all these kind of things that are more service oriented, they are relatively cheap. I have to agree. Even for Chinese, this is why a lot of people there can easily afford to take a taxi. Um, but as soon as you enter the asset world, it is super expensive. Let's take apartments. Property prices in China have become some of the most expensive in the world. They have more than quadrupled since 2000. And they easily are much more expensive than in many European cities, for instance. And it is important for a lot of people, not just to rent an apartment, but to buy one. That's also a more social thing. Another point is, of course, education and stuff. That's also very expensive. 30% of disposable income of many parents goes for the education of their kids. So pressure is high. And there is no, there's not really such thing as we have it in some Western countries where your parents and friends say, hey, you know what? If you are happy, that's fine. If you don't want to, and they mean it, if you don't want to study, if you don't wake, if you don't want to make a lot of money, if you don't want to have a family, as long as you are happy, I'm okay with it. Go your way. We have this kind of movement. In China, there, there are such trends as well, but not really comparable. So in China, there is always pressure. And it is easy to say, yeah, you can escape. And, but it's, it's, if everyone tells you the same thing, and if you are kind of in this cage, yeah, difficult to get out. So it is what it is for many people. It's a constant hassling. Why do I talk about this today? Well, I want to remind myself and also actually you guys that many aspects of China are very ambiguous. It's not only one or zero. On one hand, China is, for instance, much more advanced and modern than many people think. If you go to China tomorrow, well, tomorrow is difficult, but if you're flying to China next year, you're going to be astonished by what they have to offer in terms of technology, architecture, and so on, especially since you most likely fly to one of the more advanced cities. On the other hand, China is not really comparable in terms of wealth distribution and purchase power and social stability in many areas. The big goal of China is that by 2035, the socialist modernization in principle has been realized. So that means mostly eliminating the poverty, also some other aspects such as reduction of pollution and uh, expanding of the social system and so on. So that's a long-term target. And it's important to understand that there's still some way to go and still a lot of time between now and 2035. We often tend to mix up the oval size and conditions with those of the individuals. We see the overall size of China, their economic output, which of course is massive. We see the architecture in some cities and think, wow, that's, that's the future. And it partly is, yes, it is really impressive and it is um, partly amazing what I have achieved. But 
we also should be aware that there is there's the single person. We have to look on what's the GDP per capita, what's the income per capita. Then you see that China is still ranked much lower than most countries that we live in the West, at least. It's a very common mistake. The same, by the way, if you um, compare pollution. We say China is the largest polluter in the world. Well, yes, if you look on the carbon dioxide emissions, overall, yes, China is by far number one. Per capita, there are like 20, 30 countries that per person contribute much more to the CO2 emissions. But this is often something that we somehow tend to ignore. And it also shows the the emissions, for instance, it shows that because that's energy consumption and energy consumption at the end also reflects a certain lifestyle. And it shows the difference that we have. After all, whether you call China an, an industrial country or developing country, I don't care. I know that China prefers the latter, while many others claim China should be treated as other top countries in the world because of their size and economic influence. That's a definition that other people should argue on. I don't really bother. Important for me is to keep the difference in mind and that I know that at least right now, if I look at China, I know that for the average Wang in China, it takes a lot of work to achieve what the average Joe or, I don't know, for Germany, the average uh, Wolfgang, I don't know, very old-fashioned name, but let's stick with Wolfgang, you get my point, right? So for the average Chinese person, it takes much longer to achieve what most people here gain almost automatically. And the social and financial support that is almost unconditional here is not existent in China. This is why people, for instance, have to take these jobs and why they can be partly exploited by companies like Meituan. Well, I'm using exploit in a negative way. Maybe it's something positive. They offer these opportunities. Other countries don't have it, right? And this is why also the crisis in some fields is more harmful in China, even though they cope with it very well. And they are definitely on a very good way. So this black and white thinking sometimes that we have is not really leading to a clear picture. There is a gray in between. And that's what I keep telling people, not only about China. I see increasingly that people have strong opinions, which is okay, but they often don't see what is in between. They say, China is like this. The world is like this. They don't see that we don't live in a world that is only black and white. We have a lot of in-between. And to understand this, we need to dig a bit deeper and understand that it is not always how it seems first when you just scratch the surface that you directly can really understand what is behind a country and what drives it. And yeah, that's it for this episode. I hope you learned something useful for yourself and also could maybe adjust your angle a bit on China that you 
Also, I wear that there are always two ways on how you can look at a country like China that is so diversified. Thanks for listening to the Dragonfolio China podcast. As you've kept listening until now, I assume you enjoyed the show and would appreciate a five-star rating on your podcast app, which allows other folks to learn about this important topic as well. For more fascinating insights into China and for easy ways to benefit, make sure to visit the website at dragonfolio.net.